0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the events of this week that you have orchestrated to bring all of our life paths together at this point in time, where we can worship you, we can pour out our praise and our thanks for all that you are to us. Not just what you've done, but all that you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is never tiresome or irrelevant it is always to the point it is it always connects with our lives it is always powerful it cuts us to the quick and it it buries your truth deep within us lord i pray that that would be the same uh, for today as well that you would open our ears and open our hearts to to receive what you have for us today And that it wouldn't just be information in our heads, but that it would work its way down to our hearts and create real change in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. About four years ago, a viral internet sensation swept across social media and the web. A photograph, simply known as The Dress, maybe you've seen this, was first published on the social media website Tumblr on February 26, 2015. A debate raged on online about whether or not this dress was black and blue or white and gold. And I could probably take the same survey today and would probably have different answers as well. Uh, thousands of people staunchly defended what color scheme it was, depending on how they visually perceived it. Now, do some see it as blue and, and, and uh, black here? Okay, and some see it as white and gold. So we already have some differences here, and I'm f- wondering if the background is actually affecting that as well, how we perceive that. In fact, on the, day, on the evening of the day that this picture was first posted to Tumblr, uh, users on Twitter picked it up and at the peak of its virility that night was garnering 11,000 tweets per minute with the hashtag, the dress. Within the first week of its posting, more than 10 million tweets had been sent out about it. 10 million. The the color scheme was eventually confirmed as blue and black. So those who saw it as blue and black, you were the ones who were right. You can pat yourselves on the back. But the phenomenon launched recent scientific explorations into neuroscience and vision science, specifically in the realm of human color perception. Since this phenomenon took the internet by storm, several scientific papers have been published in peer-reviewed journals based on this area of scientific study, and all just from one post about one dress on one social media site. In our scripture reading this morning, which we'll cover in our message in a few minutes, we read about how no temptation has overtaken any of us as believers in Jesus that is simply common with humankind. However, these temptations look different for each of us. We perceive what temptation is differently from the person sitting next to us, differently from the person sitting behind us. We perceive temptation differently. Something that one of us struggles mightily over is something that's not even blinked at by someone else. Likewise, that person struggles with temptations. that, that, that person struggles with temptation uh, that are much different from the next person down the line. But as we'll see, there is a very practical means of battling these temptations. no matter who we are, and no matter what our biggest temptations are. It's a universal truth. But first, Paul needs to set up the purpose for the practical instruction he will give. This message will be a little bit longer than most messages, just a teeny bit. But this topic of facing temptation in our lives is crucially important to our lives, and we'll see why. And I I know that everybody here, if I say, are you struggling with any kind of temptation, everybody here could raise their hand. This is something that all of us deal with. So the first point in our passage this morning is the connection. And if you remember from the original context of what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians lately, a group of more well-to-do Christians in the Corinthian church have been throwing around their Christian liberty at the detriment of others in the same church. Other so-called spiritually weaker brothers and sisters were being encouraged to do things that were to them sin by those who saw no problem with it. Paul had to rebuke those who saw no problem with it, with with the way they were living out their Christian liberty, by saying that, yes, the theology behind what you are, are doing is spot on, but you need to place brotherly love and building up your brothers and sisters in the faith ahead of any Christian rights you have. Paul has already rebuked this group of believers in the Corinthian church, Then he thoroughly laid out why it was crucial to their testimony and their own faith growth. The Holy Spirit was growing self-control in them, if you remember from last week, to keep from putting their so-called weaker brothers and sisters into compromising situations. That's what we explored last week and how crucial the spiritual fruit of self-control is to the way that we live out the rest of our lives in representing Christ. But at the same time, Paul knows humanity. He knows humanity. And he already anticipates some pushback from this group. He's just rebuked and instructed about the crucial importance of self-control. As pointed out by one Bible scholar, Paul already anticipates that this group of believers is going to come back with the argument of, well, it's obvious that God is already blessing us even as we're behaving this way. Surely that means he doesn't care all that much about this, and we don't need to worry about any discipline from him. Paul, keep your opinions to yourself. So Paul launches into an obvious connection to the Old Testament that Jewish or not, pretty much every believer in that church should have been slightly aware of. So we're continuing in 1 Corinthians. We're starting in chapter 10. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, you can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. We're going to start in verses uh, 1 through 4. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Have you ever heard the stories of Exodus told in that way? That's a bit different than the way we've heard the stories of Exodus being told. Paul says the Israelites were God's own people, and they were extremely blessed upon their freedom from Egypt. They were all under the protection of the pillar of smoke and fire, which protected them from premature attack by the Egyptian army. They all passed through the parted Red Sea on dry land, and they all made it to the other side. In addition, as Paul says in verse 2, all of Israel was baptized into Moses by way of cloud and sea. Now what in the world is Paul getting at here? Well, as we know from New Testament baptism... Part of the purpose of baptism by full immersion after a conscious decision to repent and follow Jesus is that the person being baptized is being identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. By being baptized, they're recognizing Jesus as their head and leader and the head of the church or the body of Christ. In New Testament baptism, Christians are both baptized in the sea or the baptistry water and they're also baptized in the clouds. Now, I'm not referring to some something you can't see that you upload all your data to so you don't lose it. That's not the cloud I'm talking about. The image of the cloud is very similar to the term used for the Holy Spirit, or the same word in the Greek used for breath or wind. It all carries the same idea. So people who are baptized today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are physically baptized in the sea, or the baptistry waters, and are symbolically showing that they've been spiritually baptized into the Holy Spirit or they've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When a person comes to saving faith in Jesus, the Bible says that they are immediately indwelt by the third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit. Another term for that immediate indwelling by the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation is also known as being baptized with the Spirit. When John the Baptist was only baptizing for repentance, looking towards Jesus, he said, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone who is, is coming soon, who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy to even be his slave and carry his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So getting back to Israel's connection In a similar way, the Israelites were also baptized to be identified with Moses, their leader through their experiences with the protecting presence of God in the pillar of cloud and with passing through the sea. And thank goodness for that, because as you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, oftentimes Moses pleading on Israel's behalf was the only difference between God wiping them off the face of the earth because of their blatant disobedience or not. The only difference is because they were baptized into Moses. They were identified... With Moses. Paul's point in these verses, according to one Bible scholar, is that Paul is drawing connections between the nation of Israel and the church in Corinth. Now, I want to be clear that Paul is not saying that the church replaced Israel, but there are many similarities between Israel and the Corinthian church. The first one is that the Corinthian church too has the presence of God with them for protection and guidance. And they have also passed through the sea of baptism to be identified with their head, their leader. These are huge blessings as they identify the believers in Corinth as God's own as well. Likewise, Paul draws similarities between the spiritual food and drink the Israelites consumed with the elements of communion the spiritual food that represented Jesus' body and blood that the Corinthian church partook in. For the Israelites, their spiritual food was pointing towards their fulfillment and the person of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of heaven, a direct fulfillment of the provision of manna or bread from heaven, as that Paul refers to in verse 3. Now, Paul also connects Israel's drink with its fulfillment in Jesus, as Jesus symbolizing the rock from which the miraculous water poured forth in the book of Exodus. Not only does Jesus tell Peter, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, that Jesus would be building the church upon himself, the rock but even the water that poured forth for the Israelites is fulfilled in Jesus when he refers to himself as the living water to the Samaritan woman he meets at a well. The Israelites didn't know it at the time, but they were pointing towards Jesus' fulfillment and their consumption of this food and drink. Likewise, the Corinthian believers identified with Jesus when they consumed their food and drink, which also represented Jesus' body. Stay with me, this is going to be important. Again, Paul's whole point is for the Corinthians to not think of themselves as being any better than the rebellious Israelites. There was a lot more that was similar between the two groups of people than they'd like to think, including the disobedience and including the possibility for God's discipline upon them. That's why Paul point blank says what he says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. They were blessed, but God was not well pleased with most of them. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Paul is saying just as the Israelites couldn't get away without discipline as they continually disobeyed God and in fact had to pay the price for their disobedience by wandering around the desert for 40 years, don't you think that you can get away without God's discipline if you continue to disobey Him and act the way that you're acting? I also couldn't think of any better connection for Paul to get his point across. In fact, one Bible scholar noted that Paul specifically connected these examples of the Israelites specifically to the two sacraments enjoyed by the New Testament church. Namely, what? Baptism and communion, right? For a reason. Apparently, from other evidence in this letter, the Corinthians had a distorted view and practice of both of these sacraments. And in connection with their pagan background and surrounding culture, probably also thought that partaking in these two sacraments provided some kind of magical protection over them. Paul is then turning that belief on its head by clearly pointing out that those two sacraments, with their roots in the Old Testament, didn't protect the Israelites from God's discipline and won't magically protect the disobedient Corinthian believers either. In the next section, Paul says that the things the Israelites experienced were not only specific to them. Just as everything in the Old Testament law and the tabernacle plan and the sacrificial system all ultimately and specifically pointed to Jesus, even everything Israel did in disobedience was supposed to serve as examples of what not to do for believers in Jesus today. So what are those examples? That's what we, we talked about, the connection. Secondly, we're talking about the cases, the examples. Verses 6 through 10. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and these things happened to them uh, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, why are these cases or examples? Why are these specific ones the ones that Paul references? As you read through Exodus and onward, you'll see that there are other instances when Israel blatantly disobeyed God. But Paul specifically chooses these examples to prove Powerful points in his argument towards them. The first one is in verse 6. The Israelites craved the food they had back in Egypt and aggressively whined about it. If you have kids, you know what aggressive whining sounds like, doesn't it? Don't, don't you? Aggressive whining, placing so much emphasis on what God Uh, placing so much emphasis on it that God miraculously provided it but while it was still in their teeth scripture tells us God also sent a plague with it among them and killed a bunch of them the food they craved the most from Egypt what's extremely pertinent to our discussion this morning meat what do you know Paul's connection is undeniable to the Corinthian context in, in his rebuke to them if they continue to crave this pagan dedicated meat so much that they are willing to sacrifice their obedience to God, they've been warned. Second is the example of idolatry found in verse 7. If the disobedient Corinthians were present at these pagan celebrations, at these pagan temples to eat the idol dedicated meat, whether or not they thought they were, they were still completely complacent in those celebrations of idolatry. What happened when the Israelites were involved in idolatry? Moses commanded that the 3,000 people who were involved in the golden calf celebration by dancing, drinking, and pertinent to this topic, eating in celebration of the idol, get the connection, be put to death by the sword. 3,000 of them. Thirdly, is the example of sexual immorality, referenced in verse 8. The reference is in connection with the Israelites' sexual immorality in relation to idol celebrations. You see why Paul picked each of these specific examples. In Numbers 25, many many Israelite men were seduced by Moabite women who convinced the Israelites to sleep with them and worship their idols. In Corinth, some of the sexual immorality present in the church was connected to pagan temple prostitution celebrations. But Paul has also spent, as we well know, whole chapters rebuking and warning against other forms of sexual immorality in the church. We've worked through that tough instruction in the past. Here, Paul brings that up again and warns against disobeying God's moral laws for marriage and sex only occurring within marriage. Paul wants to, again, bring up the gravity of opening up oneself to God's discipline, especially in this area. Fourthly is the example of the Israelites questioning God's plan and purpose for their lives so aggressively that, Paul's, that, that God sent snakes into their community to poison them. Only those who would look up to the symbol of salvation lifted up on high, an obvious future reference to Jesus on the cross would be saved from death. Paul's point in bringing it up, are you Corinthians, like the Israelites, in thinking you know better than God for His plan for your lives, His purpose for why He saved you, and what He wants you to be doing? Do you really think you know more than God? Again, take this warning Seriously, Paul says. Lastly is the example of Korah and his followers leading a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron that Paul references in verse 10. As we've already looked at months ago, there were many camps that had formed in the Corinthian church, placing one human minister on a pedestal over another. The top three teams, so to speak, were the camps of Paul, Apollos, and perhaps Peter. Paul already spent an extensive amount of of letter writing rebuking that way of thinking and that human ministers are nothing. Only God is the one who saves and grows people spiritually. However, Paul is well aware that some, perhaps, in these other camps, are calling his apostolic authority into question. If some in the Corinthian church could successfully discredit Paul's apostolic authority over them, then they could throw out all his instruction, including all the instruction about their current behavior. They're practicing right out the window. Paul already laid out all the evidence for him having apostolic authority over them and therefore having the authority to correct and instruct them. And if they didn't want to take him or his teaching seriously they were opening themselves up to god's discipline just as those who rebelled against moses's leadership paid the price for it and as we went through all of this this is all very powerfully written stuff isn't it paul is basically saying through each of these examples you've been warned it's all very powerfully written stuff Paul is certainly not pulling any punches. And it's because of the crucial importance of everything he's been saying up to that point. Nothing shakes people up and gets their attention like reminding them of the discipline of God they're opening themselves up to and what he's already done to his own people to ensure his people stay pure and on the right track for their own good. Paul outright says exactly that in verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Don't toss all these examples of Israel's disobedience out of your mind. You serve the same God and He cares the the same amount about your spiritual transformation and the purity of His church. He will stop at nothing to shake you. And turn your world upside down to get your attention about making what changes you need to know that you you know you need to make in your life. Don't take his discipline lightly. His love for you and desire for you to change and grow trumps your comfort and happiness. I'm sorry to tell you that. There will be tears. There will be emotional torment. There will be physical distress during the time of discipline and trial. But you will come out the other side made more into the likeness of Jesus, more obedient to God's standard, and a better representative of His kingdom. Remember, like we talked about last week, God's goal is not for our comfort and happiness. That's never in the Bible. His goal for us is our spiritual transformation, our spiritual maturity. As Paul says here in verse 11, he went through all of these examples to show how detrimental disobedience to God's standards is. It's that dangerous and it's that important. He wants to shake us up with that. Remember, like we talked about last week, there is even the possibility for early removal from the earthly race of faith if God's discipline continues to repeatedly go unheeded. We read that last week. I'm not saying that everybody who leaves the earth early is because of that, but if we're repeatedly disobeying, there's always the possibility for that. I would say that's not to scare you, but to be completely honest, the Bible means it to be. That's how much God cares about your spiritual growth and your testimony to this world. And that's what brings us full circle to facing temptations. You might have wondered when I was going to get to that. All of this needed to be built up in order for us to get to the topic of facing temptations. The first guard against dealing with temptations is knowing full well what continually falling to temptation will bring. That's the first guard. And by extension being scared of how seriously God takes it. That's part of what having a healthy fear of God means. If you're so scared of what discipline you may be inviting into your life by Almighty God, by indulging in your temptations, that's already a good first protection against falling to them. And that's why Paul went through all these examples and what happened to them. You might picture God as an abusive bully at this point, but let me ask you this. How many times when you were a kid were you faced with temptation of disobeying your parents, but just knowing what would happen if you followed through with it was enough to keep you from doing it? How many times when you were a kid, knowing what was going to happen if you followed through with it, was that enough to keep you from doing it? It's the same with our Heavenly Father. Yes, He loves us, and it's because He loves us so overwhelmingly much that He will discipline us as He sees fit because He loves us that much. What follows is the additional practical instruction for not falling to everyday temptations. This is the common plan. This is something that you can take and put in your back pocket and carry with you all the time. Paul flows into his next gear here. He kicks it up a notch here. He's already graphically warned against repeated disobedience and repeatedly falling to the temptations of disobedience. Ever like the good teacher and church leader that he is, though, Paul then gives encouragement and practical instruction for how not to repeatedly fall to temptation and disobedience. We begin to see that in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Paul is telling the Corinthians and God is telling us that if any one of us thinks we're immune to temptation or that we're strong enough on our own to deal with it, you've been warned. You're not. Scripture tells us plainly, you're not strong enough. One of our enemy's favorite battle tactics is lulling us into thinking that we have a good handle on something on our own. It's one of his most favorite battle tactics. Then jumping us when we least expect it with an incredibly strong temptation. How many times does that happen to anybody here? We've all experienced this. I'm not talking into a void here. You don't want to admit it, but everybody here knows that that's what his favorite battle tactic to use against us here is. Paul already warned against that 2,000 years ago, and yet we continue to fall into that and think that way. Always be on guard. If you struggle with certain temptations, place guards so that it's harder to get jumped by that temptation. If you struggle with being financially unwise, impulsively buying things or gambling your money away, and not having enough to pay your basic bills or credit card debt, much less give to God what you should be giving to Him, put some protections in place. Bring someone else you trust in on the situation and ask them to help you place practical safeguards against these temptations. If you struggle with porn, Place safeguards well before the temptation can ever get close to you. Limit your internet time. There are programs out there for both your computer and your mobile device where you can put limitations on types of websites and apps and even one where every single website you visit is recorded and sent to someone else. Someone you connect to that account. If you struggle with having sexual relationships with people you're not married to, take what steps you need to to either marry that person or stay away from situations where you'll you'll meet people you're tempted to sleep with. If you're dating someone, don't put yourself in situations where you know things, where where doing things you know you shouldn't be doing and you should only be doing to somebody you're married to, is only imminent. Don't put yourself in that situation. If you know what you can handle and what you can't handle, put safeguards in place well ahead of any tempting situations. If you struggle with substance abuse of any kind, whether it be alcohol, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, or any other thing you know is bad for your body, again, a first step is to not put yourself in places where those things are present. Another first step is to not hang out with people who are actively engaged in those things as well. That's biblical. Paul says elsewhere, don't be fooled for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. I don't think you can get any clearer about that. Those are just the basic, basic, basic safeguards. There are many more that you can set up. Obviously, addictions is something different. That that takes more steps than these towards recovery. But basic everyday temptations should always be seen in this way. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. So that you will be able to endure it. It's very clear, isn't it? This verse is huge. This verse is key, is the key to dealing with everyday temptations. Firstly, we are to be encouraged because no everyday temptation is too powerful for us to not walk away from. That's encouraging. They inherently, the temptations themselves, inherently do not have the power to just swallow us up out of nowhere. Why? Why? Because while God will allow these temptations into our lives for our spiritual growth, raising from our old corrupt nature into our transformed new spirit-led nature, He always, always, always provides an escape hatch. The problem is we don't often look for it, but it's always there. That in and of itself, that simple truth in and of itself is tremendously encouraging to anyone who faces daily temptation. So, you know, anyone who's breathing. That is by far our greatest weapon in facing daily temptation. That right there. When we are tempted, instead of just closing our eyes real tightly and saying over and over again, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it and just focusing on not falling to that temptation, this gives us a completely new focus, doesn't it? Changes everything. Gives us a completely new perspective. Instead of just trying not to do something, this completely changes our focus to actively looking for something else. Instead, we need to look for the escape hatch. It doesn't matter how embarrassing or dumb-seeming or ridiculous the escape hatch looks. We've already established how crucial it is to look for the escape and not fall to the temptation. Isn't it always better to be embarrassed or to have people think of us differently or asking questions or we look awkward or dumb than to disobey Almighty God? This life is fleeting. Who are we really answering to? Jesus made the exact same statement, albeit in a more extreme fashion, specifically addressing sexual temptation. Jesus says, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Woo! So if your eye, even your good eye, if one eye is blind, even if this one eye that still sees causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. (laughs) Wow. This is the truth of God's Word. And even if your hand, if you can't move this one hand or you don't even have this arm, you only have one arm and one hand, even your stronger hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So take every temptation seriously. And with every temptation, look for the escape hatch. It doesn't matter how seemingly small the temptation is, there will always still be an escape hatch. There will always be one. If you're always falling to a certain temptation, ask yourself the question, well, am I even looking? Am I even looking for a way of escape? Or am I just trying to half-heartedly try to resist? Where is that going to get you? Nowhere. You will fail. I can promise you this. You will fail every time with that way of looking at things. There will always be an escape. It does not matter. Take that, throw it out of your head right now. It does not matter how it will look to anyone else. There will always be an escape hatch. All that matters is how it looks to God. That's the only one who matters. That's the only one we're answering to. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about us is whispering behind our back. You don't answer to them. You answer to God. If you're around people who are attempting you to do something, just leave. It doesn't matter what it looks like to them. It doesn't matter what they think about you. Just leave. It doesn't matter what they think. If you're in a place or situation where you're tempted to do something, just leave. It doesn't matter how it appears. It doesn't matter how it's perceived by any of anyone else. Just leave. Notice the verse does not say, fight the temptation. Do you see that anywhere in verse 13? Fight that temptation? No. That's not in there at all. What does it say? It says, just leave. It says, look for the escape. Look for the way to leave. Look for the way to run away. That's what it says. When it comes to a battle plan, it doesn't make any human sense. But it's the universal method of resisting temptation that works. So let us walk out of this place today encouraged and invigorated. You don't need to fall to that temptation anymore. Look for the escape hatch. We are not weak against our temptations anymore. We have this truth from God's Word that we can arm ourselves with as we go out into a world rife with temptations. We have our Heavenly Father who we are to seek to please with all of our lives. We have our brother and friend and king, Jesus, who died to free us from the power of sin. And we have the Holy Spirit who... Guiding us, convicting us, growing us, and giving us the power to look for the escape from temptation and taking it. We have all three persons of the Trinity working on this for us. We have all of this going for us. We no longer have any excuse anymore. We are not in bondage to our sin anymore. So let us all look for the escape hatch in every temptation as we continue to live our lives to glorify God and therefore live as good representatives of him as we live to plant the gospel seeds of truth in the lives of everyone we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very practical, universal truth. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what our temptations are. It doesn't matter how big or small we think they are. The one way of getting away from all of it is, through, is looking for the escape, looking for the way to just leave. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to look for the escape and to not just think we just need to resist it or, or fight it in some way. But Lord, we're, we're, we're so very thankful that this is a gift from you to us, that we do not face temptations alone. You allow them into our lives for our spiritual growth, but with them, you also provide the way of escape. So, Lord, I pray that we would always take that. We would no longer fall to temptation. We pray all these things in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.